Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 255 for the 18th of November, 2016. I'm Chester Wisniewski here with Paul Ducklin after our, uh, our, our little month-long uh, break. Uh, welcome back, Paul. Thanks for making time today. It's a pleasure, Chester. And I note that this is episode 2 to the power 8 minus 1. So we shall have to be careful about an unsigned integer overflow next week. Well, I was just going to say, are you suggesting that we're, we uh, should... Uh, have another break before the next podcast so we can plan out how to uh, extend the address range? Or Actually, we'd be all right if we overflow because I don't think there was ever a chat chat zero. So if that happens, we can just declare that zero is the next one. There's no law that says that the numbers have to be monotonic increasing, is there? Well, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I think we can do whatever we like. I mean, we we could call, you know, the next one uh, self-security chat chat mark one if we wanted. Well, having Chet and Mark in the same podcast title might be confusing. So uh, I, I want to know more about the Black Nurse. I mean, uh, I, I mean, I guess <laughs> I, I'm confused just about the name. I mean, I, I find it an interesting thing. I mean, the idea here, of course, being sort of a, a denial of service attack against many uh, firewalls, apparently, and, and uh, you know, resource exhaustion type thing. Why, why Black Nurse? Not sure, Chester. My guess is that it's black as a metaphor for doom-laden. And maybe nurse because the messages that are used relate to network health reports. They're ICMP messages about port unreachable. So maybe that's where the nurse comes in. Yeah, I'm, I'm just wondering if we should become one of several podcasts that refuse to use uh, vulnerability names anymore because this is getting a bit silly. But uh, but that is, you know, I think your, your description there about it being a port unreachable is quite interesting, right? Because, I mean, our networks, when they were designed, uh, you know, TCP IP itself 30, 40 years ago, I mean, this this whole idea was to assist in troubleshooting, right? The idea of a, a ping echo reply, the idea that something went too many hops and, and timed out, something, you know, you're trying to reach some service that's not available. I should be polite and come back and tell you that that service is unavailable, right? As far as I know, to make the attack work, you need to be putting about 40 or 50,000 packets a second, which is pushing 200 million packets an hour. Uh, into a router or a firewall. And in my opinion, for, for any you know entry-level or even modestly-sized firewall, even if it handles port unreachable messages and discards them really promptly, you're still loading it up pretty hard. So I'm sure you're going to notice a slowdown anyway, and some devices, it just so happened, slowed down enough to become unresponsive. And apparently, that deserved a special logo and a special name. Well, yeah, and I think you know, the risk of this, well, I guess it could have a bigger impact on a business, but I'm just thinking, you know, if these are more consumer style firewall devices and things, I guess it's a bad thing if you make the wrong enemy in Team Fortress and they want to knock you off the internet so you can't shoot people anymore. This isn't quite on the scale of the type of thing like we saw with the big attack on the DNS provider Dyne by the, you know, the IoT botnet. I mean, it's not something that's going to be uh, internet earth shattering. It's more of a a one-off attack, and I think a denial of service attack, if it's determined enough, could probably knock any router offline anyway, right? Maybe where the problem has arisen is that, at least in some of the stories I've seen, there's a kind of suggestion that this attack, which you could mount with one laptop, that you could achieve a result against some firewalls, which is kind of like similar to the sort of attack against Dyn, and that took hundreds of gigabits a second 
Indeed, this could have knocked Dyn off the internet if all their hundreds or thousands of load-balanced DNS servers providing their service were behind a single entry-level firewall on a single network port. So I think there's a little bit of an apple and an oranges comparison that's gone on. So it is an issue. Uh, my understanding is that if your firewall product uh, is based on Linux and uses IP tables, this doesn't affect IT IP tables. In other words, when it's dealing with discarding uh, ICMP packets, it doesn't have any particular problem with the port unreachable sort more than any other sort. So I'd imagine that would cover a reasonable number of firewalls in the market, low, medium and high. For Sophos customers, it, that certainly applies to uh, the Sophos UTM and Sophos XG firewall products. They do use IP tables. In theory, they're not vulnerable. And in the testing that we've done, they don't seem to fall foul of this attack, if you can call it that either. Well, while we're talking about uh, cheap and consumer kind of level devices, uh, Sammy Camcar has been added again. <laughs> I knew you were going to bring that one up. Yeah. The guy who he, He's the guy who did that, that combination lock twiddler with a 3D printer, isn't he? Well, yeah. And of course, you know, back the original Sammy MySpace worm, you know, when he was just a teenager. So Indeed. He's still at it. I mean, in fact, this is one of the first times uh, I think we might have seen a return of somebody who started out as a script kitty, but actually evolved into an interesting modern hacker. Well, it just goes to show he didn't go to prison. He did get convicted. He did get, I think, community service and probation and made to live his life away from computers for a bit and uh, it seems to have worked out well in his case and there are some great lessons to learn from this story about his what you might call booby trap network card well yeah i mean just a five dollar raspberry pi zero and i mean the strange thing is if you want to repeat this hack if you will finding a raspberry pi zero is close to impossible i think the real hack here is that he found a raspberry pi zero i've been trying to buy one for like five months and i can't find one but <laughs> It, it's it's the ultimate firmware reprogrammable network card because you're in control of every aspect. You plug it into a USB port. It doesn't even have to be a network card. The point is that the computer thinks it's talking to a network card rather than, say, a USB drive. So it applies the, hey, I need to auto-configure this because it's always safe to do that with network cards in a way that it is not with USB drives. Um, and that's where the danger comes in, isn't it? Well, that's exactly it. I mean, there's so many things that we plug into our computers that are just automatically recognized now. Almost all of them uh, that are unfettered are USB. Uh, 18 months ago or so, we were you know, talking about bad USB. You know, We've seen things like uh, the, the USB rubber ducky, which is a keyboard emulator. And again, you plug in a USB device that says it's a human interface device. It's something everything automatically recognizes and goes, oh, it's a keyboard or a mouse. I'll let it do whatever it wants. And and that's what this is, right? I mean, it's it's pretending to be a network card, and then it fires up a, a DHCP server and says, I am the internet, and I am really fast. And then your computer goes, oh, right, you're the internet. I should send you all my packets. It also seems a little strange that the operating system would blindly accept a genuine network card that claimed to speak on behalf of 0.0.0.0 slash zero. I would think that it's unlikely that that could ever possibly be true. Back to people emailing us at Naked Security and, and at the podcast here about, you know, do we really need HTTPS everywhere? And this is more answer as to yes. I mean, if every website is protected behind HTTPS, then it doesn't really matter if they get, let's call it loop backed through one of these little devices. 
And that, that reminds me of the next story in a way in that uh, I was recently in Tokyo and I checked into my hotel room and I got on the Wi-Fi and I used my mobile phone to contact, uh, to call my mother and let her know I had arrived safely in Japan. And while I did that, uh, there was a knock on the door and a guy comes walking in to check on my minibar in my room. And I thought that was odd because I'd only been in the room about five minutes. And uh, I asked him to come back later. And about 10 minutes later, another person walked into my room. And this person was coming to do the turndown service and put a chocolate on my pillow. And about 15 minutes after that, a third person came into my room and was trying to deliver someone else's dry cleaning. And, and, and people often accuse me of being a bit paranoid that I won't leave my laptop or any of my computer equipment in my hotel rooms while I'm traveling. I always carry my backpack with me everywhere. And it's got my medicine, but it's also got my laptop and other personal effects. Uh, that's precisely why leaving your devices unattended can be rather dangerous. And uh, a recent uh, flaw in the uh, full disk encryption used by most Linux users shows why. Maybe you can explain a little bit to us about this this kind of uh, pre-boot environment that's necessary on on computers that are that have full disk encryption and and what what's been uh, broken this time. The default way that full disk encryption is implemented on Ubuntu flavored distros is it doesn't actually encrypt your entire disk. It creates creates a small filing system for uh, slash boot. And in there's the kernel and some startup scripts in a disk image file. And those scripts include bash file that actually is responsible for reading your password. And it turns out that if you deliberately get the uh, root partition password wrong sufficiently many times, then eventually the script just goes, okay, this isn't working. The the root device is just not mounting. There's obviously some fault. And it, it goes, well, I'll, I better drop back to an emergency root shell then, <laughs> which it does. So I thought that was an interesting story, and uh, it does seem rather an irony that the bit where you actually put in your full disk password is a simple bash script that's in an unencrypted part of the volume. So if you are a Linux user and you want to use full disk encryption, my recommendation is find out for your distro how you can actually get the password to be requested in Grub, the bootloader, or even perhaps in the UEFI level, don't have it in a in a rather easily accessible partition. That sounds like good advice. Uh, there was a, a one of these more fantastical uh, side channel attack stories again recently related to getting your uh, potentially your phone pin, for example, from simply analyzing your Wi-Fi signal. What the guys were able to do, they're looking for minute changes in the quality of the Wi-Fi signal as recorded by modified firmware on the booby-trapped access point. And the actual changes in the Wi-Fi signal they're looking for are caused not by you putting some giant lump of metal in the way or going into a cave, but actually by the position of your fingers on top of your phone, believe it or not. And they claim a reasonable although not not particularly excellent success rate uh, at least in differentiating the 10 different places on the keyboard where you would type in a pin so it can't do a full password with a full mobile keyboard but it can kind of tell that your hey your fingers at the top left or the bottom right and make a pretty good stab at guessing what the most likely digits are signal processing has come a long way in the last few years has it not 
Well, yeah, I think this is an argument for a few different things, though, isn't it? I mean, aside from that, this is a somewhat impractical attack at this point. If impractical attacks against cryptography are any example, they only get better over time. So it is something to take seriously. But, you know, we also have to think about uh, the whole pin thing in general, right? I mean, the number of pins I observe people entering on their iPhones and Androids on a daily basis, just being on the train uh, or at the airport is kind of absurd. I watch people use their phone for 30 seconds and drop it into their suit coat pocket. And I'm thinking, boy, if I was a crook, I mean, I just reach in and fish that out and I'd be off on my way and I'd have access to all your stuff. Uh, it's a good idea to use a passphrase rather than a pin that would thwart this attack. Uh, I use a passphrase in combination with the fingerprint sensor on my phone. That's another way to thwart this attack. So there are ways, of course, uh, of kind of getting around this. And hopefully maybe there are ways in the future that we can maybe obfuscate the radio signals more. Maybe a little encryption, just like when we're talking earlier. Maybe a little crypto would help. Uh, or a tinfoil hat or tinfoil gloves, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> which oddly uh, leads into the final story in a certain way, which is... Facebook has uh, acknowledged publicly that they've been buying up stolen passwords on the black market in order to protect Facebook users who maybe have reused their passwords and had it compromised somewhere. I mean, these are all, I guess, layers of protection. And apparently Alex Stamos thinks it's a good idea. I'm not really sure where I stand on the idea. Just to clarify, the idea is that, as we know, Facebook and many other um, big web properties have been grabbing password dumps when they're made so my understanding is what they're doing here is they're saying well let's not wait for the crooks to dump the passwords for free let's go and buy them up front and uh, cut out the waiting time so you can sort of see it from that point of view but as far as supply and demand goes you kind of worry about what sort of behaviors amongst the criminals that it might be encouraging don't you I personally wouldn't be buying stolen credentials myself, but I'm not sure I'm willing to go as far as to criticize someone else who is. By mentioning it, it sort of asks a lot more questions than it answers, which is, you know, are you sharing them with other internet providers? What is your mechanism for doing that? Is that ethical? Or is, you know, is it more ethical or less ethical? You know, should Google and LinkedIn independently buy the same stolen credentials or do you guys have like some sort of secret stolen credential sharing cabal and how do i get involved maybe my company can benefit and boy it, it certainly seems to be square in the middle of the gray spectrum i agree with you they i'm sure their motivation is entirely honorable and it's probably saved a few people but again that issue of what behaviors is it encouraging what sort of market is it creating well, I think we'll leave the opinions on that up to the listeners and invite them to share their opinions as well as opinions on all of the stories covered this week over at nakedsecurity.sophos.com. All of our podcasts are available on TuneIn, iTunes, uh, everywhere that fine podcasts are found, including soundcloud.com slash sofasecurity. Until next week, stay secure.